Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 349 from the bonus feed of Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. This episode was recorded on February 9th, 2021. Joining me on the line, as always, from Idaho is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. So earlier on the main free feed, we talked about state-level labor law. And today on the bonus episode, we're talking more about state-level labor law, but also the rise of unions in the early United States and the original gig economy. We talked a lot about Prop 22 on the main episode. And in this part, our specific lens for exploring these topics will be the influential Hunt v. Commonwealth ruling by the Massachusetts Supreme Court in 1842. One thing we have not emphasized much on the show so far, because it's much less recognizable to us in the 21st century economy, is that there really wasn't a so-called U.S. economy per se during much of the early U.S. history and the first industrial revolution. The United States grew out of several original colonies that had decided to form a confederation and then a union. And for a long time, these states remained pretty separate economies, separated by vast distances with poor interior transportation and communication. Companies would often end their activity at the state lines. And for much of the pre-Civil War period, we wouldn't really recognize modern currency and banking systems compared to our own systems today. These transformations have a lot to do with the Civil War and are likely topics for future episodes. The interstate commerce that became such a massive force in the middle of the 19th century and the post-Civil War period took a long time to develop. We talked in 2020 in our five-part series on Standard Oil about how unprepared the government was at the federal and state levels to deal with interstate corporate monopolies like Standard Oil or the growing conglomerations of railroads, simply because they really hadn't seen that kind of thing before. They had to pass much more extensive legislation to deal with the interstate commerce activities by new interstate companies, and these laws unfortunately also became the genesis for early and typically hostile federal labor laws focused against emerging interstate organized labor unions. Before that era, in the pre-Civil War period, however, labor law was almost by definition based in state law because labor organizations were based at the state or local level since interstate companies were unusual or very limited in scale. There was also a transitional phase which we're going to be talking a lot about today, between old-world guilds of skilled piecework producer shops and the new craft unions of skilled and semi-skilled workers in specific occupations, like factories or railroads, before the later rise of the industrial unions for labor on an industry scale. Part of that transition, as we'll be discussing today in our bonus episode, has to do with the difference between a guild's regulation of the entire profession from the owners or masters down to the apprentice workers before the advent of full capitalism versus a union representing skilled peace workers for hire by those masters 
in the era before piecework was replaced by factories and mass production. In the profession or industry that we'll be covering today, that conversion to factories happened on the later end of the first industrial revolution, so we're essentially looking at this transitional era of labor organization in the final phase of proto-capitalism and proto-industrialization, although this is happening later in the 19th century than in other industries, which had already fully industrialized and capitalized decades earlier. To give a sense of how far into the economic development of the United States we have to go to see something approaching labor law that we can even recognize as being from an industrializing economy, we're talking about, as I said at the beginning, the 1840s in Massachusetts in the state Supreme Court ruling Commonwealth v. Hunt in 1842. For comparison, that's only a couple years before Karl Marx began writing communist theory in Europe. This ruling was written by Massachusetts Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, and the ruling found that it was not an illegal conspiracy to form a guild or union to apply pressure for higher wages. So this case is really interesting, and Rachel and I went and read through it and made a lot of notes about it, and then read some other analyses on it. And essentially what was at the heart of this case was what we might call sort of the forerunner to a closed shop concept. Journeyman bootmakers formed a club called the Journeyman Bootmakers Society. And that club had a rule that said that no member would perform piecework for any master craftsman or merchant who did not hire journeymen from the club. Now a journeyman at the time would have meant a skilled and trained wage laborer working for someone else, but free to leave, unlike an indentured worker. Typically, the boot sellers would need several journeyman boot makers to fulfill orders for the boots. So this sort of proto-union was pretty effective at pressuring them to hire only members. Seven members of the societies were indicted for conspiracy. Rachel, uh, I was wondering if you could talk to us about what the indictment against the leaders of the journeyman bootmaker society was. So this is a quote um, that appears on mathcases.com that, that goes over this case. Um, so on the first Monday of September, 1840 at Boston, being workmen and journeymen in the art and manual occupation of bootmakers, unlawfully, perniciously, and deceitfully designing and intending to continue, keep up, form, and unite themselves into an unlawful club, society, and combination, and make unlawful bylaws, rules, and orders among themselves, and thereby govern themselves and other workmen in said art, and unlawfully and unjustly to extort great sums of money by means thereof, did unlawfully assemble and meet together, and being so assembled, did then and there unjustly and corruptly combine, confederate, and agree together that none of them should thereafter, and that none of them would, work for any master or person whatsoever in the said art, mystery, or occupation who should employ any workman or journeyman or other person in the said art who is not a member of said club, society, or combination, after notice given him to discharge such, such workmen from the employ of such master to the great damage and oppression, not only of their said masters employing them in said art and occupation, but also of diverse other workmen and journeymen in the said art, mystery, and occupation, to the evil example of all others in like case offending and against the peace and dignity of the commonwealth. So they're basically saying that these journeymen coming together are basically offending and stealing from the from the masters, from the, the people who are employing them to work on these boots. Not exactly the most concise legal writing, I would have to say, <laughs> <Right>. either. Um, there's, <laughs> yes. 
there's also kind of a hint in the indictments that they were alleging that there was kind of a shakedown element where the club would force owners to pay fines to the club for violations of the club's rules for its members. Um, I interpreted that, although I wasn't completely clear, to mean that they were talking about rules around wages and working conditions. Um, one specific angle of attack in the indictment was that the club had sanctioned one of its own members for doing a bit of extra work on some boots without properly charging for it, and this was considered to be impoverishing that laborer who was a member of the club. So they were tried on a bunch of conspiracy charges for extortion and restraint of profits in late 1840 for activities dating from late 1839. Um, according to the Wikipedia article on this, uh, they had been acting as a combination in Boston since 1835, but they were not targeted for prosecution until after the financial panic of 1837. They also had not threatened any kind of strike or disruptive activity when the charges were brought. And there was no known threat to labor peace at the time, despite the line about how this combination or association or club was uh, offending against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth and setting a bad example. Um, now, kind of astonishingly to us today, as noted in the Massachusetts Supreme Court case uh, on this conviction, the charges were based on English common law. Uh, because Massachusetts, like many U.S. states at the time, did not actually have a written statute prohibiting such conspiracies to restrain trade or profits, and it was still up for debate as to whether or not common law should fill gaps not yet legislated on. A reminder, this is 1840, we're talking about 1842 in the case of the Supreme Court ruling, so quite a ways into U.S. history at this point, even though we're still, broadly speaking, talking about early U.S. history. To the extent that England itself had written laws on the subject before the American Revolution, these laws mostly dated to the Black Death era wage and price control laws attempting to contain the exploding power of wage labor following the mass death of a huge percentage of the workforce in the 1300s. This is cited in the court ruling, but I would also encourage listeners to check out episodes on this topic from Patrick Wyman's podcast, Tides of History. The Supreme Court, in their ruling, also observed that many of the labor market challenges of late medieval and early modern England not only did not have anything in common with 1830s and 1840s Massachusetts labor markets, but were also different enough to the situation in colonial Massachusetts that many of the laws that could have been imported from medieval England to the English colonies never were, so it wasn't clear to them why this was particularly relevant. The Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled ultimately in 1842 that it was improper to charge or convict the journeyman bootmakers for having formed a club for higher wages because they were not conspiring to commit unlawful acts, but simply conspiring to commit, at worst, a civil injury and had never been accused of anything else. Moreover, they noted that each individual worker had every right to demand higher wages, so it logically followed that forming a club to do so in a joint manner was also their right, which is, of course, the basis of this being such an influential ruling in American jurisprudence and legal doctrines around the existence of unions in the first place. Rachel, could you go over what they found in their ruling related to this point? The means which they proposed to employ as averred in this count, and which, as we are now to presume, were established by the proof, were that they would not work for a person who, after due notice, should employ a journeyman, not a member of their society. Supposing the object of the association to be laudable and lawful, or at least not unlawful, are these means criminal? The case supposes that these persons are not bound by contract, but free to work for whom they please, or not to work, if they so prefer. In this state of things, we cannot perceive that it is criminal for men to agree together to exercise their own acknowledged rights in such a manner as best to subserve their own interests. 
So again, this case is pretty interesting as a lens into the evolving labor market of the time, especially in this industry, which hadn't actually started to industrialize yet. It's that proto-industrial process, which we will uh, again talk a little bit more about in just a bit. A conspiracy, according to the court ruling, was only an unlawful conspiracy if it was undertaken to do something else that is otherwise illegal individually or to do something that is not illegal but use means to achieve it that are illegal under any circumstances, including individually. A conspiracy to destroy property or commit murder or a conspiracy employing tactics like lying and cheating would still not be allowed, but a conspiracy so-called to demand higher wages or else withhold labor would be fine. The court ruled that the judge in the original trial had been in error when he instructed the jury that the labor combination was itself an illegal conspiracy by its very existence, whereas the defense attorneys had asked the jury be instructed that the indictments never alleged any illegal objective or illegal means that the conspiracy had been formed to pursue. The prosecution had framed the indictment as to suggest that a labor club forming to demand higher wages in concert was automatically an unjust extortion, quote, of great sums. The manifest intent of the association is to induce all those engaged in the same occupation to become members of it. Such a purpose is not unlawful. It would give them a power which might be exerted for useful and honorable purposes or for dangerous and pernicious ones. If the latter were the real and actual object and susceptible of proof, it should have been specially charged. Such an association might be used to afford each other assistance in times of poverty, sickness, and distress, or to raise their intellectual, moral, and social condition, or to make improvement in their art or for other proper purposes. Or the association might be designed for purposes of oppression and injustice. But in order to charge all those who become members of an association with the guilt of a criminal conspiracy, it must be averred and proved that the actual, if not the avowed, object of the association was criminal. The court further wrote that it was absurd to suggest that an association of people lowering the profits of a business by merely influencing the supply and demand was automatically illegal because then it would be illegal for a group of people to form to open a new business near an existing business in the same line of work because that would reduce the first business's profits. And so if that's legal, then surely this is legal as well. Interestingly, the court did not comment on the defense's argument that professional associations like the Bar Association were prevalent among professional Bostonians and involved similar sanctions against working with non-members. And you can see sort of that the uh, divergence there of unions for the working class and professional associations uh, for the uh, emerging, but at the time quite small, uh, professional white-collar class at the time. One interesting point in the 1842 court case, given the modern day disputes around so-called independent contractors, who we talked about in our Prop 22 episode discussion earlier in the week, uh, who are treated like day labor, even if they work for an employer for many years, is how many times the court in 1842 emphasizes or differentiates the concept of free wage labor as opposed to contract labor at the time, meaning indentured apprentice labor for a defined term of service or of some years, or other formalized contracts for extended employment terms with business owners, such as a landowner hiring farm labor for an entire year instead of seasonally. 
the court treats the free wage laborers as essentially sole proprietor businesses selling skilled labor to larger business enterprises or craft masters looking to sell goods at market. A retail customer seeking to purchase a pair of boots would buy from the boot business, which would in turn have paid a skilled bootmaker to make the boots and supplied the materials needed to the bootmakers. This is known as the putting out system and was prominent in the Boston area at the time. But typically, an 1830s bootmaker would not have been permanently employed by a boot seller as differentiated from, say, a boot factory with an assembly line for mass production of boots, which emerged after 1850. In 1899, just for closing the narrative loop, this would consolidate into the giant United Shoe Machinery Company monopoly based in the Boston area, which actually evolved into a major defense contractor and which was eventually broken up by the federal government in the late 1960s after multiple antitrust cases, but I'm going to leave that for a probable future episode because that was sort of an interesting and bizarre tangent. But the point we want to emphasize here is that this is basically a an industry or a profession that industrialized much later than a number of the other professions around it. Um, so even so, up until 1850, we're talking about a non-factory, non-industrialized process, but we are talking about a transitional phase called the putting out system, where you don't have a shop with you know dedicated workers owned by a particular master. Instead, you have these sort of master craftspeople or merchants who are the boots, sort of the boot sellers, the middlemen, whatever, uh, who put out the labor to these independent contractors, essentially, these uh, kind of day laborers, peace workers, and so forth, who work at their homes or their own little shops. And that's why the court treats them as these independent proprietor uh, small businesses themselves. But as we can see, that is sort of a misclassification itself uh, from our you know, modern perspective, able to look back and see how this process developed and so forth and better understand the class relationships here and the relationship to the labor uh, and the wages and so forth. These are essentially day laborers, uh, wage laborers who are working in short bursts on specific projects uh, like what we would consider, you know, recognized today as independent contractors, you know, on a zero hours contract or something uh, or, you know, contracted uh, or contracted for a specific project uh, and then let go after that. Um, and that is a different relationship. Uh, and that is why they were forming what we would basically recognize as a very early union today. And again, that is different from the guild system of the Middle Ages and you know the Renaissance era and so forth, uh, because the guilds are representing those uh, that, that shop system with the apprentice tracks and everything like that, and the people who work in the same shop for years at a time, etc., as opposed to this putting out system where they're independently contracting out the production to these little shops or to what you may have heard referred to as a cottage industry, which would be where you would literally send it out to the countryside to people uh, in cottages, which that also had existed you know, on a small basis for quite some time, you know, in the late Middle Ages and beyond. Uh, but that is a key transitional step before you get to factory industrialization is that proto-industrialization process where you, you know, send out the work 
to these specific small time workers uh, who work on specific projects or work, for, you know, a day, a day here, a day there, etc., as opposed to having them be in your shop in town, uh, all working under the same roof and so forth. Or as opposed to after 1850, working in a factory side by side on machines for mass production. Now, uh, the Wikipedia article on the Hunt case notes that pre-American Revolution labor unrest among non-slave labor was typically relatively disorganized wildcat incidents that weren't considered illegal in their own right, setting aside any resulting property damage. And there was not much pressure to make them illegal because they were not viewed as part of a broader pattern or trend. Additionally, colonial era laborers had typically been indentured and apprenticed to masters who would contract to produce outside work, essentially as a small business vendor to mercantile interests, which is a different relationship compared to an independent wage laborer, or to use the parlance of the time, a journeyman selling his labor from one producer or master craftsman to the next. The wage laborers began to outnumber these master craftsmen as the first industrial revolution gained momentum and factories began to replace artisanal shops in the city and cottage production in the countryside. A few states tried to prosecute labor combinations in the early 19th century, but not very vigorously, and the significance of the Hunt case law, which is also not written law, of course, I think that's worth emphasizing, it was a Supreme Court ruling, not a law that was passed, uh, is that Hunt spelled out that such combinations were actually explicitly legal, not illegal, at least in Massachusetts, uh, and then this, as I'll talk about in just a moment, uh, had significance beyond Massachusetts as well. It's also interesting, of course, that the Hunt case, as Rachel just read, includes various suggestions of how these combinations, what we would now consider to be basically unions, early unions, uh, could do all sorts of beneficial things, right? They could not only guarantee work for their members, not only guarantee these higher wages, uh, but they could also advocate for improvements in the craft, making the work better, making it higher quality. They could have sickness funds. They could help each other out. They could sort of have this fraternal solidarity. And that's another point that's interesting, and maybe something we'll talk about in another episode, is that relationship between sort of fraternal societies and early unions and how there was kind of a lot of categorical overlap or um, stylistic overlap. Now, Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, who issued the Hunt decision, was normally not pro-worker, so to speak. Um, and this was, the Wikipedia article was sort of making this out to be some sort of strange outlier. But I actually think that we can see in this decision a consistent worldview that he had, even if you wouldn't classify him as pro-worker, because his framing in this case of wage laborers as independent businessmen selling their labor is not how we would view it today, but it is a popular, was a popular sort of viewpoint then. We actually alluded to this in our episode about uh, our episodes last year about the Pinkertons, where we talked about how Alan Pinkerton uh, was not just against unions because it was good business to be against unions, but he was also convinced that unions were, and this is sort of the basis of the indictment in the first place in this case, that unions were getting in the way of the bold, rugged individualist wage laborer going in there and negotiating his own salary and getting what he's uh, worth in pay and so forth. Um, not a realistic scenario, but it's certainly one that we still hear today, right? People will make that case against unions and say, oh, you know, you don't need the union to speak for you. You know, you can go in there and negotiate your own salary or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, certainly not a realistic view of the situation. 
But just before his ruling in Hunt v. Commonwealth, Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw had ruled that a railroad company was not liable if the actions of a rail worker injured another worker because the liability falls to the worker. Uh, again, I see this as a consistent worldview between these two cases, even if you would say one is a pro-labor outcome and one is an anti-labor outcome, because again, it's viewing these sort of precarious near proletarian workers uh, as being kind of these independent subcontractors of these companies rather than being, you know, cogs in the machine and so forth. Uh, the other possible explanation offered for the Hunt ruling as theorized by some legal scholars is that Shaw, as a prominent Whig, merely wanted to uphold labor peace in Boston to avoid angry workers mobilizing in support of the Democratic Party. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a theory that's out there. Now, the significance of the Hunt case beyond Massachusetts. Although no labor conspiracy cases were brought anywhere in the U.S. for decades after Hunt in 1842, because it was viewed as such a strong precedent even outside of Massachusetts, during and after the Civil War, with the rise of interstate unionism, labor militancy, interstate commerce laws, and federal antitrust laws, prosecutions eventually ramped up again. But some states in this period, like Pennsylvania, took action to pass laws explicitly legalizing unions at the state level. The Hunt ruling also made clear that labor conspiracies would be unlawful if they used unlawful means to achieve their goals, which served as a very important precedent for future prosecutions around specific labor actions, which were unlawful or illegal, or at least allegedly so, even if a labor organization's existence was often considered legal by default after this ruling. Uh, so, Rachel, I wanted to pause there and get back to you now that I've kind of talked about some of the significance of this um, to get your thoughts on this case. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting to even think about unions potentially being illegal just in today's landscape um, or like hear them spoken of as like a conspiracy just because conspiracy kind of connotes this this skullduggery, this like underhanded uh, means of achieving your goals. Whereas unions, I see them as very above board, even though they kind of had a, have a checkered past. But the the kind of the vision of unions today is people just coming together to lawfully like bargain for wages and working conditions. And it's just kind of hard to conceive of this early American history where just by combining your labor that you're like attempting to extort money from like these these masters or craftsmen or whatever. What did you take away from the case in terms of a lens into the broader world of the early industrial revolution? Again, not early in the overall context of the industrial revolution, but at least early in the context of this particular industry, which was later to the game in this process. Well, like you said, it like it is kind of that transitional phase where you're still skilled or semi-skilled where versus the industrialization where you just become your labor just becomes a commodity for the business. Here in during this transitional phase, you you are valued for your skill. There is still kind of a higher value put on your labor because you are doing more parts of the process versus like you kind of envision in a, in a factory, you're just doing the same tiny piece over and over again. And it seems like at that point, then your labor becomes like further devalued and you just 
are kind of seen more as like just a commodity or just a cog in the machine. Um, so you can see that kind of happening in real time in this industry. Yeah. So I think that this, as you said, is an important window into that transitional process. I think it also demonstrates a sort of trend line in precariousness. And it's a good reminder as well when we're talking about, you know, mechanization and automation today, many people always assume, well, surely my industry will always have job security and need skilled workers and they won't be able to get rid of me. And we see in a clear example here where probably a lot of these people thought, well, surely nobody's going to be able to make a machine that can make shoes or boots, right? You're, you're going to need to do that by hand. And uh, eventually, as I said, after 1850, you start getting, you know, I think thousands of patents around shoemaking and bootmaking uh, processes for factory production. And very quickly, you see the emergence of uh, assembly line factories where, you know, it's not quite to today's level where you push a button and then watch the machine do all of the work, but still certainly a lot less skill required than what we're talking about in terms of these journeyman bootmakers in the putting out system. Um, it's also a good illustration uh, of the overall, as I said, trend line toward proletarianization and precarity that was clearly identified in Karl Marx's economic analyses, which, as I noted, were uh, started to be published just a few years after this decision. So this decision was 1842, uh, Karl Marx's famous Communist Manifesto, 1848, and he had, of course, been writing uh, for a few years before then on the topic. Um, there were a few interesting quotes that I noticed in uh, the Communist Manifesto that seemed relevant to this. Um, in one of the particular points that I wanted to make uh, comes from this section. Uh, the growing competition among the bourgeois and the resulting commercial crises make the wages of the workers ever more fluctuating. The increasing improvement in machinery, ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combinations, trade unions, around the bourgeois, the, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. So for those who haven't read, I'm guessing quite a lot of our listeners probably have read it, but for those who haven't read, Communist Manifesto is pretty short and Chapter one is not as much of a manifesto so much as a description of economic processes. That is, of course, a lot of what Karl Marx is writing overall is about his descriptions of economic processes and historical development. But that particular line, I think, is a good illustration of the process that we saw there, right? You previously had had guild systems, which for their, you know, all their faults and stunted development and so forth, and certainly the people, the masters at the top benefiting a lot from it you at least have some job security uh, and you can work at the same place probably for quite a few years. Uh, then we transition into this phase before the advent of factories, but you transition to the putting out system where people are either working on putting together shoes or boots in their own little shops or their cottages or whatever. And you never know if you're going to get steady work from one day to the next, right? Uh, whoever is the boot seller, whether it's a master craftsman himself or just some middleman merchant guy, he might decide, 
you know, he doesn't like the cut of your jib, or maybe he found someone else who was cheaper, and all of a sudden your work dries up. And of course, that's a comparison point that we want to make to the gig economy stuff today, right? At any time, your zero hours contract uh, could be just reduced to zero hours and you never see work again. That could even be as simple as your shift manager doesn't like you, right? And so what we see here, as Marx describes, is that eventually the workers in these positions, uh, and they're not in, you know, industrial factory workers yet, they start to form together in these combinations to try to advocate to keep wages up and so forth. And then just as described in the court case, talking about the potential uses of these associations, you see this grow and spread to serve various other functions uh, for the benefit of the members, not just purely, you know, keeping up wages, uh, which the prosecutors were alleging in the 1840 prosecutions were somehow extortionate by virtue of even existing. A few other quotes to go over here that I thought were relevant to this. Uh, and again, when we're talking about the Communist Manifesto in 1848, Marx is looking at the stage of industrial development that was further along than in the bootmaking industry of the 1830s and 40s, which as I noted, did not have factory mass production at that point. But it applied to other industries, and then very quickly thereafter applied to the bootmaking industry as well. So uh, he says, the feudal system of industry in which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. The guild masters, i.e. a full member of a guild, a master within, not the head of a guild, uh, were pushed on one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Uh, another quote, in proportion as the bourgeoisie, i.e. capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class developed, a class of laborers who live only so long as they find work, and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers who must sell themselves piecemeal are a commodity, like every other article of commerce, and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market. Modern industry has converted the little workshop of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and the more embittering it is. And as we said, that's looking at the two sides of this transitional phase and what we're talking about with these journeyman bootmakers and their association in the middle in the putting out system of the 1830s and 1840s is that transitional phase where you are bridging the gap between the old system, the little workshop of the patriarchal master, and then later after 1850, the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Uh, and to tie it back to the tech industry today, I think we are really seeing it's already begun, but you're seeing kind of the journeyman coders and it's always been kind of that learn to code has been the rallying cry of liberals because it's seen as a way to, to make a good living. But as we're seeing today, coding isn't, it's not as skilled anymore. It's not as highly valued. So you are seeing that independent contractor model turning into like the cog in the machine where you're just writing tiny bits of code that go into a larger project but you don't really get to see 
what you're working on as a whole. And so you're getting, you're getting alienated from your labor, much like bootmakers working in a factory were alienated from the end product, the boot in the factories. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in many cases, the people making these boots would never even get to see the person that they sold it to. Whereas previously, you might have had the person come into the shop and, you know, get it custom fitted and, you know, get all the measurements and so forth. And there would be one person kind of walking through the whole process as opposed to breaking it up and atomizing the process. Also, I think the point that you make with regard to the modern day stuff uh, is, a, is a further great point uh, about how some of these jobs that seem like they're, you know, stable, skilled, white collar professional jobs can also find themselves being turned into this sort of day labor or project specific labor. Uh, and that brings us uh, to two final quotes before we wrap up. The lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. And finally... The essential conditions for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. So we can see the process here. First, they try to isolate the laborers and, you know, do the putting out system. But ultimately, these laborers still know that they're in competition with each other and that they're only going to be strong by associating and forming these combinations, which is what we see happen in the 1830s with the journeyman bootmakers forming their club in Boston. And as Marx is basically arguing, the capital can only be accumulated uh, in, you know, and these enormous profits accumulated by converting to a system of wage labor as opposed to the previous guild shop system. Uh, but this wage labor brings these other challenges, which is why we see after the panic of 1837 attempted prosecution of a quote unquote conspiracy of these journeymen forming a club together to demand higher wages, because that's an attempt to try to knock that down and say, actually, you can't do that, because if you do that, that's going to take away profits from these companies. And how dare you? That's not allowed. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me this week to talk about uh, more about state labor law and specifically the history, the early U.S. history of that uh, with its origins in the Hunt v. Commonwealth case in 1842. Thanks for having me.